Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Roxanne, read the thing. <laughs> oh, sorry. It was just in my I own know. little world. Like, own I mean, with, world. with the sound effects and everything. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> From Luminary, this is Here to Slay, the Black feminist podcast of your dreams. We are so happy that we can just be the podcast of your dreams again. I am Tressie McMillan Cottom. And I am Roxanne Gay. You guys know this. On Here to Slay, Tressie and I, we will talk about everything and anything because we have opinions on everything and anything, <laughs> whether it's cooking, <laughs> politics, TV, books, whatever. We want to talk about yep. it. And we don't just talk to anyone. No, we do not. People try, but we have got standards all up and through here. We talk to women, mostly, especially mm-hmm. Black women. And guess what? We what? are in luck. There is no shortage of interesting Black women to talk to. Imagine that. And not only is there no shortage, we are in every single industry you can imagine making things happen. So we are talking to the kinds of women who get shit done. That's us. Hey, girl. Hey. Tressie. Hey. (laughs) You got that look on your face, Roxanne, like you've had a day, my friend. I have had a day, and it's only 11 in the morning, but (laughs) here we are. I have... Arthritis. No. Yeah, I do. I have. I get it very bad in my hands. Okay. And so my hands are useless until I don't know whatever's going on in there starts to go on a little better. Mm-hmm. And around the time when I'm about to have my period, I know this is super personal, but it's just a reality. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, I get arthritis in my right knee. Huh. It's shocking, but I'm always like, oh, that's what it is. You know what is so fascinating to me? I think all kinds of stuff happens when you're about to get your period. Oh, yeah. There's just no medical evidence of any of it because they usually exclude us from medical studies because mm-hmm. we have hormonal periods. Because yeah. you know what mine is? Mm-mm. I get really bad allergy attacks when I have PMS. Mm. I start sneezing like crazy. I I have hay fever, seasonal allergies. I'm allergic to God knows what. But since I was at least 18, 19 years old, I've known this my whole life. There is a relationship between my period hormones Mm -hmm. and my allergy attacks. I just, and I've said it to so many doctors and they always go, huh, maybe. I mean, they're useless. (laughs) These are useless human beings. They're so useless. And especially when it comes to women and our bodies. So every month I have this range of symptoms that are fairly consistent, but the arthritis thing is about a year old. Okay. And then I get my period and I'm like, oh, right. That's like it. That's every the, month. It won't let you live, will it, girl? It won't let me live. But long story <laughs> short, my workout has been raggedy lately. Just raggedy. Yeah. I'm not in the mood. I'm over it. I'm over all of yeah. it. Yeah. I, I have a very nice home workout situation. Mm-hmm. I have all of the equipment that one could want. I have a little cardio machine. I have a, a recumbent bike. Mm-hmm. I have weights. I have this. I have that. And certainly since COVID started... I have acquired a few other things Mm -hmm. because 
one must exercise to offset all of the baking and so on. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It wasn't but anyway, even the baking for me. This. You know what it was for me? I realized I didn't it? have, if I didn't leave the house, I didn't have enough stuff to fill my time that wasn't also work. I mean, like that mm. first 16 weeks or so of, uh, you know, the series shutdowns, I mean, I worked as much as you can work. Mm-hmm. And I already have a workaholic tendency because I might have control yes. issues. And so it was it was wreaking havoc on, like, you know, my well-being, wreaking havoc on my body. Writing is actually super hard. Uh, on you physically. We never talk about this. I've had to like invest in ways to make sure I kept moving. I've never been a home workout person. I like going to a place because I want to punish myself as much as possible when I work out, apparently. Mm-hmm. And working out at home just seemed like the easy road and uh, the easy way out. But then COVID made it inevitable. And now I'm gone, girl. I'm gone. Why don't you tell us how gone you are? Because oh, I know how gone you oh, are. I- Okay, I have not really said this anywhere publicly and still won't. So don't some of y'all little sorry listeners come ask me about this on Twitter because I'm going to ignore you. Y'all do this all the time. You'll hear us <laughs> talk about something on the show that's just for family. And then they'll come on Twitter, Roxanne, spreading all our business. I will ignore you if you do this. Well, y'all, I got a Peloton. Got a Peloton in the moment I moved into the house. Mm. I just beat, I think, the COVID rush because I got mine within a matter of like a week and a half or something. And... As it turns out, I mean, I'm never going to be an enthusiast about exercise, but as it turns out, I like the stupid bike. No. I even joined like the (laughs) Facebook groups. I don't participate, but I like to know what the hell's going on. So I do that. And then that just started a whole thing. I got something called the DB Method, which is a squat machine. What the and then two nights ago in a 2 a.m. mad shopping crush, you gone. I also got something called the Tonal mm-hmm. because everybody kept talking about it in the Facebook group. And that's a weightlifting, mm-hmm. virtual weightlifting machine set up. And so I'm that person now. Wow. See, I've been thinking about getting a Peloton for New York yes. and because I need some yep. piece of cardio equipment. And uh-huh. Frankly, the Peloton is the most affordable of the options that I'm considering. And that's, I know, I know, it's ridiculous. But exercise equipment that can support fat bodies is more expensive. You can't just go and buy $200 machine off the Amazon. No, you cannot. It's not going to work for me. It is not. Mm -hmm. It's the fat tax. So... I've been looking at the Peloton, but I'm afraid of the clipping in. You should be. Now, the listen, in let me just seems tell you. Me. I want to just put real yes. pedals on my Peloton. I don't need to be attached to the bike. I don't give a fuck about my turn <laughs> yeah. count. I've Clearly been reading you the have. little forums about it. Yes. Mm-hmm. I was just about to say, personalize the hell out of it. This was the other thing that I learned during COVID. I should make the world fit me instead of working so hard to fit the world all of the time. I did the same thing, girl. Mm-hmm. I hired a man to come out when he delivered the bike. I got it fitted for my height, my, you know, my issues. I got a custom seat because I don't care what they say. I didn't want my hoo-ha hurting. I just did the damn, yeah, I did the damn thing. And because of that, I actually use it. So it's so important to do that kind of stuff. But you mentioned the fat tax. It's just a good thing. We're going to talk about the fat tax today in many different ways. The fat tax is sizes. Let's get that over over with. But here's what we're going to talk about today. The fat tax is also fundamentally racist. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And classist. Absolutely. 
you know, because I get a lot of people who email me and say, hey, where do you get your clothes? And the surgery was really great. And I, I I hated it, but I'm also really glad I did it. One of the best things has been being able to buy clothes mm-hmm. and feel like I look you okay. You look great. I want and, the leather jacket. Oh, the leather jacket. Is the I, bomb. Know, I, I know. I know. Next time fuck. at that house, keep your eye on it. Universal standard. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I've been getting a lot of clothes. That Sometimes I get clothes at Torrid and Torrid is like in a mall. So, you know, it can be pricey, but not really. Mm-hmm. It's it's within the realm of realisticness. But uh, Universal Standard, in my opinion, mm-hmm. is not accessible. And 10 years ago, I would not have been able to afford mm-hmm. many pieces from Universal Standard. Yeah. And I've been thinking about that a lot lately as I think about what are fat women supposed to do if they don't have disposable income? Mm-hmm. But what what do people who make $35,000 a year, like, what are they going to wear? And the flip side of that tax is not only do things cost more and are harder to access, like actually get mm-hmm. access to because mm-hmm. it's not at the store, right? You have to do it online. You pay a tax associated with that. But the stigma associated with being fat, which mm-hmm. is a stigma mm-hmm not unlike being Black or viewed as poor or working class, makes it so that you are less likely to have a high income. Yes. So the stigma depresses your income potential and then everything for you costs more. Like that's the tax we're talking about. And it's everywhere. We also pay the tax when we go to the doctor. Yep. And we have to advocate for ourselves mm-hmm. and prove that we are good fat people and... That, you know, we're not on death's door. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk to a guest later in this episode who talked to us about this and was really interesting. As if we owe people good health. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As if that's a hallmark of hum- like of being a good person. That, like, that we assign a moral value to it. And if you're going to the doctor, you may not be healthy. Like everybody going to the doctor is in poor health. Mm-hmm. That's why you go to the doctor, right? We are not a healthcare system set up for good preventative care. You're going to the doctor because something is wrong with you. But singularly for Black people, for fat people, and for poor people, you are always perceived as a drain on the healthcare system. Um, speaking mm-hmm. of guests that we're going to talk to, this guest has been recommended, nominated, begged for by our listeners for I don't know how long. And yes, y'all, We knew we were working (laughs) on it. Like, give us a break. We were getting there. So many of you are going to be thrilled. We are speaking with Sabrina Strings today. Now, Sabrina is an associate professor at UC Irvine, where she studies public health and sociology. But why you really wanted her on the show to talk to Roxanne and I is because her latest book is titled Fearing the Black Body, The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia. And so we began our conversation by asking Sabrina what's really going on when we're talking about fatness in this culture. So how do we get here in the discourse? What are people saying when they are saying obese? It's a it's a dog whistle. It definitely is. And so yeah. for people who are unaware, obesity in America and often globally is defined as having a body mass index, which is a ratio of weight to height of 30 or greater. But mm-hmm. one of the things I've been talking about a lot is that the major problem, one of the many problems with this whole obesity discourse is that The BMI, as it was created in the 19th century by a European, was never meant to apply to individual bodies. It was supposed Mm -hmm. to measure a population distribution. Exactly. Of weights 
in Belgium. And when we adopted it in the United States, it was not based on any form of empirical science. Mm -hmm. This is what is most troubling. It was one powerful white guy making stuff up. He was like, you know what? These insurance company standard weight tables, they're arbitrary. Mm -hmm. We can have our own arbitrary measure. Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll have BMI. And then he was like, yeah, we'll just put like these biomarkers here, there, boom, boom, boom. Uh, it's, it's really concerning because it's being applied, as you've already articulated, to black populations in order to explain mm -hmm. our health outcomes, even though mm -hmm. there's no empirical science supporting the creation of these categories. And there were no evidence that there were people of color consulted or included in anything that amounted to the conclusions that mm -hmm. Dr. Ansel Keys drew. So we can see how it's just another mechanism of a powerful white scientist trying to discipline black bodies. And when we talk about disciplining bodies, one of the things that is um, not stunning to me, but it is emblematic of how we understand what black people are supposed to do and be. You know, we are supposed to be controlled. We are designed to be controlled, to be placed where it is to the greatest benefit of uh, white people, of power, of money, of capitalism or whatever. Um, it's how that trickles out into popular culture and it becomes this ruling idea. We read your uh, New York Times op-ed piece. You start with this story of meeting with a bunch of public health people and these are the people who are responsible for the messaging, the way the public understands health and well-being. And there's some economists in the room, which that's always a mistake. But, but you're talking to public health and economists right. and <laughs> who just show up in the strangest places. Why are the economists ever even there? I, I mm. usually don't know. And being asked, why are black people sick? Yes. Tell us what happens next. So this is yet another example of powerful white scientists trying to create norms that apply to black people. Effectively, I was invited mm -hmm. to sit in on this a meeting of these high profile scholars within the field of public health. And I was completely in awe. Mm -hmm. And then the things that they started saying were evidence of the fact that they knew very little about what happens on the ground mm -hmm. in black communities, much less how to treat and care for black communities. Mm -hmm. So they were just like, yes, you know, black people have some of the highest rates of prostate cancer and diabetes and, you know, obesity. And I, oh, gosh, why are black people so sick? <laughs> and so, you know, I just said, slavery. And <laughs> And That's can, the answer. <laughs> but that yeah. is the answer. And I said it deadpan just like that. You know, it's like, yeah. and, you know, people were sort of, you know, sitting up in their seats and, you know, oh, like, what do we even do about this response? And because I think they were expecting me to elaborate or draw it back. But I just sat right. there like, okay, answered your question. And now let's move on to thinking about how we're going to address these issues. Mm -hmm. um, but for the most part, I think that they didn't really know how to grok what I was saying. But as I was talking about in my New York Times piece, we don't get to pretend like black Americans and white Americans began their journey in this country on equal footing. Black people mm -hmm. started out as slaves. Mm -hmm. We were treated as if our lives didn't matter, except for as a form of commerce. And to the extent that our bare health not optimal health, but simply barely keeping us alive was necessary mm -hmm. for the reproduction of their profits. That was the extent of their concern about our lives. Not much has changed. And not much has changed since then. Mm -hmm. I'd also like to add, uh, there was one meeting that we had where they were like, why are black people poor? And I was like, lynching. Yeah, I've been in that meeting. <laughs> yeah, 
yeah. I've been in that meeting. Yes, yeah, white yeah. racial violence. Exactly. Quite literally. White yeah. racial Do you violence. know about Tulsa? And so, you know, they stopped inviting me after that one. I, yeah, I stopped getting invited to those things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's an honor. It really is. It's an honor and a privilege to not be invited. Truly, yes. Because that's how you know that you've said something that's touched a nerve. <laughs> For sure. And this is a bit of a backtrack, um, but I just have to know. How did you come to this subject? Because I know why I right. care about this subject. Yeah. <laughs> but based on just looking at your face, why do you care about this subject? That's a great question. And, you know, I'm happy to elaborate. Uh, so I'm what's considered a straight-sized ally to fat activism. Oh, I've never had straight-sized ally. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, and I'm proud to be that. Uh, however, that's not where I started this journey. I actually began this journey mm-hmm. interested in thin stuff. You know, people don't think about thin studies very much anymore, but in the 80s and 90s, they were all the rage. You know, Susan Bordo, um, Naomi Wolf, you know, there were a lot of people. Oh, Kim yeah, Chernin. that's right. Yeah. I didn't know that term thin studies, but you're, I read a lot of Naomi Wolf for the writing of my book. And you're right. There was this, she had this vein in her work. I had never thought of that. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And so they were concerned about articulating how the cult of thinness, as many were calling it, mm-hmm. like Roberta Seed, mm-hmm. uh, operated as a form of oppression for women. You know how mm-hmm. white feminists in the second wave were hitting us with that yes. women category that was a catch-all. Uh, <laughs> right. And so, you know, I grew up reading these literatures. And then by the time I was in my early 20s, I started to see how this was really impacting not just white women, but a growing number of women of color. Mm-hmm. Um, I was working at an HIV medication adherence clinic where I interviewed a black woman and a Latina on the same day. And they each told me they were afraid of taking their HIV meds because they might gain weight. Yeah. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is a tremendous issue. The stakes are life and death. Yeah. Yeah. And what they're communicating to me is that they're willing to risk death in order to maintain their figures. You know, this is the kind of language that people use. Yes. And so that's how I came to this topic. Um, And it wasn't until I really dug into the history of thin valorization and fat phobia that I saw the connection between anti-blackness and Mm -hmm. fat stigma. You know, you, you really touched on something that I've been thinking about for the past year. My mom has stage four lung cancer Mm. and she has lost probably Mm. 50 pounds and she was not fat Mm. to begin with. So like I, I, every day I'm like, where is it mm-hmm. coming from? Oh my gosh. And she's happy. She has never been yeah. happier. Oh, like Roxanne. in terms of her body, she is just floating around wearing all the, and it, every time she talks about it, like, cause my wife pointed it out to me. She was like, cause I'm so worried about it. And she's like, Roxanne, your mom is thrilled. And I just thought that's how pervasive mm-hmm. fat phobia yeah. is that you can be like fucked up. And losing a ton of weight and you're like, mm, but that may be happening, but I'm wearing a size two. Yeah. It's just and what's the value crazy at the end of the day. I mean, if your health is exactly you know, definitely at risk, you know, then you find that you are joyous yeah. about the sort of a body size yeah. that's supposed mm-hmm. to, according to the medical establishment, um, be indicative of good health. Right. So we can see all of the ways say, in which this is incorrect. Stunning right there is that. She, if she presented and someone didn't know about her cancer, if she presented to a healthcare professional, they would mark her as healthy mm-hmm. based simply on her weight. Yes. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, even in my own lifetime, I've thought, oh, I wish I would get a terrible disease that I would mm-hmm. survive, but that would just like knock off this uh, last hundred pounds. Yeah. It, yeah. It's crazy. It's right. just crazy. And because there are all of these ways in which people have known for years, for literal decades, that Oftentimes when individuals are slender, especially if they've been on these crash diets or, you know, smoking, they're engaged in unhealthy practices in order to Mm -hmm. maintain these types Mm -hmm. of figures. But rather than interrogating practices and histories that, you know, individuals biographies, people come into the doctor's office, they take their weight. And if it's above a certain weight, they say, now it's time for you to focus on losing weight. Mm-hmm. You know, effectively, the, I've noticed that the American medical establishment's approach to fat people is we care about the health of fat people. We just think it's important to eradicate fat people. <laughs> They'd be so much healthier. <laughs> right. If we could just eradicate fat people, fat people would be so much healthier. Damn, when you put it like that. It's very true. Shit. You know, I have a lot of medical trauma. And so I don't, for a, a spell, and by spell, I mean a long time, I don't know, seven, eight years. Mm. I did not go to uh, the doctor unless it was critical. And um, only mm-hmm. in the last three years did I intentionally try to seek out and build like a medical team to go to the doctor regularly. And by then I had so much deferred like medical stuff. I spent two, three years, I'm still in the middle, two or three years just sort of like rehabbing myself yeah. because I hadn't been to the doctor in so long. And... um One of those traumas, some of it was related to childbirth, but one of those traumas was related to how dismissive medical doctors were every time I showed up. I couldn't get medical care even when I did show up, Mm -hmm. not for the thing I was presenting Mm -hmm. for. Right. Right. Yeah. I would go in because I have a sinus infection. You literally can't get help for the sinus infection because they want to talk to you about your BMI and like won't talk to you about anything else until you sort of perform being totally embarrassed about how fat you are. And I'm absolutely going to take and they'll give you that printout with your diet. And the diet is literally from 1968. Oh, my goodness. It's like. You know, it's like cottage cheese and do two ounces of protein and, you know, but you have to take the material or else they won't treat you. Feeding into then the unhealthiness, Mm -hmm. unhealthfulness of black people. We don't go because you treat us like we're sick and then we get sick and we did it. So what is this relationship to, we know like the, the big answer starts with slavery. Help us unpack how in the present medical industrial complex, Mm -hmm. You know, how fat being so closely tied to our idea of race and unruly bodies, bodies that don't deserve health, mm-hmm. impact how we stay unhealthy. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually, there's a lot to talk about there. And I think the first thing that we have to think about is, even though it's the mandate of doctors to take care of populations, oftentimes what happens in our context is that doctors are pressed for time. And they are concerned Mm -hmm. also, let's be honest, oftentimes about profits. So what kinds of things are insurance companies going to pay me for? And also, Mm -hmm. I only have 15 minutes with this person. Okay, insurance companies require me to, at the very least, take information about their BMI and their overweight. So this is what I'm going to give them, and then I'm going to move on to the next person. So we think about the question of profits and the questions of limited time. But then there's also the question, obviously, of racial bias. One thing Mm -hmm. that we have to keep in mind is that there are not enough African-American doctors to serve African-American patients within the United States. So then we Mm -hmm. end up going to doctors who are not black, often white doctors, who even though on the surface they want to treat all of their patients equally, in reality, they carry within them 
these internalized anti-black biases. Mm -hmm. And it's not as if they're necessarily cognizant of it, but they don't always treat black Mm -hmm. patients equally to the way that they treat white patients. Mm -hmm. So it might be a possibility that an individual could show up and have their background queried, find out about any family histories, really that they would dig into all of the factors that are driving them to appear at their physician's office. But unfortunately for too many black people, they don't take the time to figure out all of the things that might be going wrong. And so you come in, Mm -hmm. they treat you like you're simply a number, they tell you to lose weight, and then you leave. And what would be your motivation Mm -hmm. for returning Mm -hmm. in that instance? Yeah. Did a lot of doctor hopping precisely because of that. I'd have the doctor I'd go see for my allergy medicine, the doctor I would go see for birth control, the doctor I would... Because you just kind of, you know, you were cycling through them. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I avoid the doctor at all costs Mm. and... It's for the exact same reasons that Tressie avoided doctors and had medical trauma. And even now I struggle to go when I know I should. And I think about it a lot that then we are told that we have a lot of comorbidities. Mm. And it's like, yes, because I haven't been to the doctor in 27 years. Uh, I've been to the doctor. Yeah, because they're horrible. (laughs) They're horrible spaces. But they're so horrible. And I wonder, is there anything that will will shift how we think about fatness and health and the correlation there. And is there anything we can do? Well, I know that we're not the problem, mm-hmm. but what will it take for medical professionals to, to see us as human? I think what it really requires is a movement. And I think that there's multiple different facets of this. On the one hand, we need to simply get doctors to understand that taking a person's weight, calculating their BMI is not sufficient to know something about their health outcomes. And so just eradicating the use of BMI in and of itself would be a tremendous leap forward in my view. Okay. Because now there's not this one tool that they're applying to all populations. Yeah. So to require doctors to be more holistic in their approach to treating Mm -hmm. patients, but that isn't the only form of anti-blackness that black people are experiencing in the doctor's offices, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there is this whole kind of neoliberalism that runs through medicine, which suggests that people will be healthy if they take care of themselves. So if they eat right and exercise, they'll be healthy. And right. if they're not yeah. healthy, it must be because they're not doing these things that we know are proper. So uh-huh. even if we you know, where to remove BMI and other weight-related measures as a consideration, it doesn't mean they won't still be anti-Black in other ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are some of those other ways? I mean, I think we know, but like to make it concrete for our listeners who I not, if you have never been in a Black body, in a fat body, but especially in a Black fat, I will even add female or femme body right. or non-binary body. I don't think people understand how hostile. Right the doctor's office is. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, yeah, when we talk about BMI, which all in favor and actually, yes, I feel like that is, that's the kind of thing that can actually be achieved and done right. like to take it out of the profit center of the medical profession, yes. right? Take BMI mm-hmm. out. Um, but like the other aspects, right? Like the assumption about whose body should be reproducing mm. or how mature you should be. Like the sexual maturity of young black girls in the doctor's office, I think is a real problem in understanding um, sexual histories and culture and all of that. What are the things that we talk about that you have seen in your work that is just a concrete barrier to black folks getting the health care we deserve? You know, I think as sociologists, we can understand that race is a social construct. 
But mm-hmm. unfortunately, for a lot of people who maybe are not familiar with social science literature, many of whom are physicians, they don't understand that there are not firm biological differences between the races. And no. so they assume that there are many physicians, not all of them, obviously, but many physicians who assume that black people are just different. You know, that we are just different in fundamental ways. Some of them Mm -hmm. may be cultural and some of them may be biological in their minds, but they expect that we are simply going to be sicker, you know, due to our quote unquote differences. And one of the differences, there's a couple of different differences that come up in these ways. Um, A lot of researchers have done work on the notion that black people have a greater tolerance for pain. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. And so then doctors don't prescribe the same level of pain medications. For That's example. right. Yep. So you're there. You're there and you're freaking miserable. Exactly. I've been like this. Yes. Literally had just been cut open from like stem to stern, as I like to say. Ugh. And they were like, "Ooh, are you sure about pain meds? Like we had to wow. my mother and uh, family had to argue and fight mm-hmm. for pain meds yeah. less than two hours after me coming out of like major surgery. Oh, my gosh. Right. That should never yeah. take place. You know, no, never. Yeah. No, it's unacceptable. It's unacceptable. And yet people believe that black people somehow biologically have a greater tolerance for pain, mm-hmm. which is completely mm-hmm. false. Yeah. Just because we survived slavery. Right. <laughs> Me. right. <laughs> Our ancestors were resilient and proud, but we do not have a greater tolerance for pain constitutionally. Yeah. Right. So we need to get the mm-hmm. same types of medications that are available to white populations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's also the belief by many that we are culturally inferior. Oh, you know what? Black people don't know how to stop eating ribs and mac and cheese. And, you know, uh-huh. they could just put down, you know, the sweet potato pie. Uh-huh. They treat us that, you know, it's our cultural diet that's killing yeah. us. These kinds of um, embodied notions of differences mm-hmm. between black populations and white populations make it even worse for black people. So and this is these are things that they believe about us separate from weight. So we have a long mm-hmm. way to go in just addressing racism in our society because it's the racism in our society that is, you know, influencing these doctors' behaviors. Yeah. They they live in the same yeah. stew that the rest of us are stewed in. Exactly. They, you don't get a special <laughs> like they don't get a special resistance to racism when they get the white coat. Exactly. I think that's the that's the thing. I'm like, the code is even white. Like, y'all, what do y'all want? It should, <laughs> right? it should be a mental symbol of how white the profession is. Right? Message. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I want to pivot, actually, a little bit from the healthcare professionals now. I want to ask you something about, like, culture and women mm-hmm. and fatness and racism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things that comes out in your work um, that I'd like for you to unpack for our audience is how how much fat phobia is driven by fear of being like a black body. Yeah. That those two things became wedded. And one of the things that comes out in that narrative to me is how much it sounds like when people, especially white women, say fat, it sounds very similar to how they say black. Mm, Yeah. Like it has this Mm -hmm. same sort of resonance to me. And there's a reason why fat and black sounds (laughs) like uh, pejoratives in the same way to my ear. How does that happen? Yeah. You know, I appreciate you noting that linguistic slippage, right? It's almost as if they know Mm -hmm. on some level, even unconsciously, that there's something about being fat that makes them seem racially improper. So they need to figure out how to get themselves Mm -hmm. in line. There you go. You got it. Yep. So, and you know, the relationship, it does, it goes back to slavery. Yeah. Yeah. When um, race was originally instituted as an idea, which was in the late 17th century, there was a French theorist by the name of Francois Bernier, and he was intervening in questions surrounding whether or not there was, quote, natural slaves. Okay. Right. 
So we're talking about the growth of the enterprise of slavery, mm-hmm. especially within Western Europe. And so, you know, he was one of these people who was sort of thinking, you know, perhaps, you know, perhaps there aren't these natural slaves. But in the early days of race making, they relied on skin color as this mm-hmm. proxy for these um, apparently biological distinctions, according to these uh, uh, theorists. However, over time, as black people, white people, indigenous people, etc., are were all mixing in the colonies, there were too many vagaries with skin color. It was not a reliable right. measure. Yeah. So they decided mm-hmm, yeah. to incorporate other supposed aspects of black difference. Okay, we know black people are overly sensuous. Black people love sex. They love food. Uh-huh. And this is what makes them constitutionally greedy and fat. Right? And uh-huh. so if we want to show that we, and by the we, obviously they meant European men, that we are the, the species, effectively, who are capable of self-management, then we should lead mm-hmm. by example. We don't overeat, and we're mm-hmm. not fat, mm-hmm. right? And we will civilize mm-hmm. Africans, uh, ultimately, uh, according mm-hmm. to our beliefs. So you can understand mm-hmm. how, for a lot of white women, the idea that, that, that slenderness is somehow evidence of some type of moral propriety, but then also mm-hmm. being racially proper, is driving this fear that they'll gain weight and no longer sit atop the racial aesthetic hierarchy. It's interesting to see how embedded power structures Mm -hmm. are in this discourse around fatness and how fatness is framed by medical professionals and also how it's viewed societally. I actually had not made all of those linkages, but Mm. damn. Yeah. What I heard in what you were saying was, to be a white woman is to desire thin. Like mm-hmm. maybe even if you don't become thin, but yeah, there's something to saying, I at least know it's the right thing to be. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like the holy grail. Yeah. 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 And so um, also to Roxanne, you were on this um, incredible This American Life episode that I uh-huh. listened oh, to. Oh, we've mm-hmm. talked about this episode, honey. <laughs> it was so good. Yes. Right. The one where uh, he was, where Ira Glass was like, go and get those Twinkies during the yes. interstitial. And I was like, girl. Oh, yes. yeah. I don't know oh, yeah. Part. He's very yes. fat. Oh, yeah. He's, oh, let me hear about this. He's very fat phobic. He struggled no. to like, oh, yeah. That was one of the worst interviews I've ever oh, had. Him and Terry Gross are like tied for like fat phobia and weird anger about fatness oh, that I don't even think yeah. they know. It. I, I think it's just, I, I don't think it was malicious. I think they genuinely don't know how to handle fatness. That's actually mind-blowing and so disappointing because I play that particular episode for my students all the time. You know, yes, because Roxanne is brilliant on it. So good. Yeah, because she's brilliant on it. Absolutely. Yes, because the juxtaposition between your experience as a fat black woman Mm -hmm. who is simply trying to get respect for their humanity and Eleanor Baker's Mm -hmm. experience as a fat Mm -hmm. white woman who lost 100 pounds trying to get that sweet, sweet white privilege. And then she Uh, did. Sweet, sweet. (laughs) And then she did it. White privilege. I, that was, you know, it's so powerful for yeah. my students to see those side by side. Um, mm. And so, yes, mm-hmm. it definitely speaks to the fear of a lot of white women that they're not going to get all of the benefits of whiteness. Oh, yes. That episode haunts oh. me because she said the quiet thing out yeah. loud. Precisely. That her life, she got married. Everything mm-hmm. about her life improved, which anyone who's lost a significant amount of weight. And I, I've been writing about this lately. Like people, the more weight I lose, the nicer people mm-hmm. are to me. 
And mm-hmm. I just keep realizing, oh my God, so do thin people experience this every day? Mm-hmm. Oh, no wonder they're like so that. happy. Yeah. And I just thought uh, it was so remarkable that she gave voice to what so many people who do lose weight know, that your life does improve. And it doesn't improve because you're a better person. It improves because people see you as a better person. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and so for me, as a person who's like straight size in the so-called normal weight category, um, I like to tell the story about the time I went to the doctor about a year ago and he saw that I had gained a few pounds Mm -hmm. and it wasn't Mm -hmm. even a lot of weight. It was maybe like four or five pounds. And he was, yeah, you really want to make sure you keep your weight down. And I thought, well, keep my weight down to what? Because actually, um, even by your own measure, I'm still within the normal weight And you weight can group. burp out four pounds. Like four pounds <laughs> is a natural <laughs> fluctuation. You know, between your menstrual cycle, yes. bloating, all of these things that women experience. And this was a male doctor yeah, that course. I subsequently stopped seeing for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. But I just remember sitting there stunned. Like, so um, this is an obvious example of fat stigma because even a person who's a so-called normal weight and should not trigger Mm -hmm. any of your ridiculous red flags is still being disciplined on the basis of normal bodily fluctuations Mm -hmm. it's like you're always pre-fat when you're black he was concerned about (laughs) me being Uh pre-fat yes like fatness is just Uh fatness is is just lurking Mm -hmm. and it's always interesting to see medical professionals react to blood work that does not give them the narrative that they think is your truth Mm -hmm. I I have gone to doctors who are like I think we should retest because you know maybe your sample got mixed up with someone else and other sorts of fakaka (laughs) and I just think (laughs) what? yeah yeah I've got to tell you guys, so I'm going to, I'm going to out myself here. I don't talk about uh, this kind of thing a lot. So one of the ways I was able to start to develop a working, somewhat healthy relationship with a medical professional, Roxanne knows this because I called her one day and said, you got to do this thing. I now see Mm -hmm. a concierge medical doctor. I go to one of these firms where I pay an extra fee to see a doctor who would read through my whole history, understand me as a whole person, et cetera. The reason why I did that is because I didn't know how else to just get baseline care. It is obviously a significant privilege. I was able to afford it, and it pisses me off every time because here's what happens. It's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. They don't weigh me every time I come to the doctor. She Mm -hmm. asks me how I feel about my weight. Sometimes it's okay. Sometimes it's not. After doing this whole medical assessment of me for a couple of weeks where they, you know, got all of my baseline numbers, she says to me, you know, you can only really lose, she said, about 15 or 20 pounds because your muscle density is so high. You're very muscular, she said. She said, so just, you know, when you get around to it, shoot for 15 pounds. And I left there and started crying in the car because it was so normal or what I assume normal must be. For that privilege, I pay five figures a year to be treated like a human Uh being. That, to me, felt like a significant black tax Uh to get basic health care. And I both enjoy it every time I get that positive experience. And then immediately Mm -hmm. afterwards, I am so angry. (laughs) Yes. When I started to avail myself of concierge medicine, it made me outraged in terms of being black. And it made me outraged in terms of lucking my way into having enough disposable income 
to do that. Because when I used to live in rural America, which is just ravaged by poverty, and you can see the health effects on the white mm-hmm. people. I remember I would sit in the waiting rooms at the doctor's offices when I was living in Indiana and rural Michigan. And I would look around at people who were like on their last legs, mm-hmm. hacking up a mm-hmm. lung, looking, you know, washed out, like they looked unwell. Mm-hmm. And It had nothing to do with weight, by the way. They just were deeply unwell people, missing limbs from uh, diabetes that's out of control and all kinds of just heartbreaking, preventable stuff if they had adequate health care. And because they were living in these impoverished places, that adequacy was not even an option. Mm -hmm. And I just get so angry that you can buy your way into dignity yeah. and you can buy your way into effective health care. I, I, I just, and there's like, what do you even do? Because we live in a country where people are like, health care is a privilege. It's not a yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. So can you, what have okay. you got to make us feel a little better? Is there something we join? Is there a group I sign mm-hmm. up for to say, yes, this, you know, what can we do, Sabrina? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, first I want to address the obvious tragedy of people having to pay concierge fees just to get what in many countries is considered baseline medical care. Please speak on mm-hmm. it. it. You know, when we talk about the exorbitant cost of health care, people often want to incorrectly finger obesity. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, look how expensive obesity is, et cetera. It's like, no, healthcare in the United States is expensive because the insurance industry is running rampant. Yeah. You know, it's running roughshod over all of our lives and finances. And it's making it even more difficult to get simple care yes. for all you know, for all Americans. You know, and mm-hmm. it's even compounded for people who are fat, black, mm-hmm. and female. Yes. And so, yeah. you know it's like a trifecta. It is. Right. And so, so much of the work that people like ALC are doing, Mm -hmm. trying to get universal health care coverage, would go a long way in reducing costs for everyone. Yeah. But it doesn't still reduce the stigma of living in a black body in the United States. You know, that is part of the black tax that we pay. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, having this universal health coverage, definitely a huge improvement for Americans. Also, eliminating BMI. Mm -hmm. would be amazing, you know, for fat people, especially, but also for all Americans. None of us need this disciplinary regime. Yeah. But, you know, we need to remind ourselves that that's just one institution. And what we are really talking about is anti-blackness in this country and the legacy of being in a racial caste system. Mm. All right. So then I go back to my original things, which is I always think Mm. economic reparations. (laughs) Yes, we need that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And like, I mean, co- because culture really follows the money, right? That's just, that's what yeah. it is. Culture follows the money, the economics mm-hmm. of the thing. And so if we could get, you know, as black Americans, the type of respect that we deserve in order for questions like reparations to even be addressed fundamentally and seriously within Congress. You know, I think that ta Coates did a fantastic job during mm-hmm. his testimony, but I'm not quite sure where it went after that. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah. If, you know, if we can have a serious conversation about restitution for African-Americans, then we can actually start to move forward to a more equitable society, but not without that. So I love this. It is putting economic inequality to me in the health context I think people think of this as, again, going back to black people being greedy, gluttonous. Oh, no. The idea mm. of even asking for what is owed us, asking for what we deserve, is construed as us asking for more than we deserve. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And so, so important. That's why your work is so important and so wonderful. I've got to tell you, I unleashed your book on every white woman I know. 
I'm not even kidding. Another, because when they start reparations, that little, reparations. I did a book club a couple mm. months ago, one of these Instagram book clubs, and they were reading thick. So I dropped in, and it's, it was a bunch of uh, mostly white women in health awareness. I think they call their health awareness might have been what the community they call themselves. So they they talked about health holistically and all of that. And I was like, yeah, you think you do. And hmm. I had a copy of your book literally sitting there when because I, I was ready. I was ready for them. <laughs> and and they are still emailing me. Girl, you broke their little brains. Oh. <laughs> you did. Because I said, if you want to talk about health and you want to talk about healthy body weights, I got something for you. <laughs> yes, right. You know, they like to pull that card out. Like, OK, well, we have to, you know, be able to reform your bodies according to health. You know, right. But it, we can see how it is its own moral discourse. It's like, why should your understanding of health be more important than my understanding of enjoyment in my body. Mm. So you want me to weigh a certain thing because you think that's healthy. Mm -hmm. But I enjoy these foods. I enjoy these practices. I enjoy my culture. Mm -hmm. I'm fine. I'm I'm enjoying I'm enjoying my life, right? Yeah. Like Tara Hunter. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so I enjoy my freedom. And so how are you going to tell me that your notion of health is more important than my mental and physical well-being as I define it? I mean, the, the idea that their desire for what they have construed as healthy is in fact deeply rooted and inherited racism just blows Ooh. their mind. Mm -hmm. So, yep. Like, <laughs> sit with that, Becky. Exactly. Right. <laughs> Sabrina, we have a question that we love to ask all of our guests, okay. but especially the Black women. Okay. And that is, how can we help you do you? Meaning, how can Tressie and I, the show, our audience, support you in all of your endeavors, personal and professional? Well, you know, just being able to have a conversation like this supports my endeavors. You know, um, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate that now I have the opportunity to have conversations with a lot of people on these topics, but rarely do I get to have conversations with two powerful black women like this. And when people see us, you know, all aligned like a squad, then they pay <laughs> attention. Like yeah. people notice, yeah. you know, because now black women are really finding our own power and we don't feel like we need to have any other body within this conversation, right? So just being able to speak with you all is in and of itself a support for my work. So I'm so grateful to be given this opportunity. Thank you for saying that. And your work helps give us a language for something we know exists, but the connections you have drawn are so critical and so vital and so important to the public discourse. So if you do not have it, uh, uh, Sabrina Strings' latest book, important book, is called Fearing the Black Body, The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia. If you want to blow up your wine club meeting, your leggings <laughs> meeting... <laughs> your, your live life love meeting mm -hmm. bring this book next time you get together it's a good time <laughs> thank you so much for being on here to slay thank you for your important work and thank you for talking to us sabrina thank you both this has been a wonderful experience likewise same here So that was Sabrina Strings. I hope that you guys all check out her book. And because we have been suffering from an embarrassment of riches, <laughs> our next guest is equally impressive. Her name is Sonia Renee Taylor. She is a performance poet, an activist, an educator, a fierce force in this world. And she is the author of The Body is Not an Apology, which is being re-released right now with a workbook. And she is a leader of a global movement of the same name, where she encourages people to not apologize for the bodies they live in. 
just the title alone um, of your book, The Body is Not an Apology, even if sometimes the body is a lot of work, The Body is Not an Apology um, really resonates. Mm. Roxanne was saying, actually, before you join us today, how very sexy it is to just even say the body mm. is not an mm. apology. Mm-hmm. I it love sexy. that. I mean, to like not apologize. So, so many women and as a woman who sleeps with women or one. Yeah. Woman clean that up. Clean that up. <laughs> clean it up before you get in trouble today. <laughs> let me, you be let me tighten my shit up. <laughs> let me tighten it up. Gather it together. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, women are always apologizing for their bodies, which I have found to be uniformly glorious mm-hmm. in, in mm-hmm. their however they present themselves. And so when you have these moments of not apologizing and saying, this is me, this is how I live in the world. It is incredibly mm. sexy. It is. I mean, I think it's true for like no matter what it is, a certain level of just ownership of oneself I think we've all seen it when you when somebody walk in a room and you're like, oh, they know that they know that they know yeah. who they are. Mm-hmm. And you're like, you could you could get it off of that energy alone. Yep. Right. Like that's, <laughs> yep. you know, it doesn't even matter what you look like. It's just like, oh, that ownership. And so I love the invitation that we just own ourselves mm-hmm. that way. Yeah. And is that what mm-hmm. you think of the title as being like in, of the phrase an invitation? What is it an invitation to and how does somebody accept it? How does my accept the invitation? Mm, it, it, I do consider it an invitation. It's an invitation to first allow ourselves to think about what we've been apologizing for. Because mm. there's a way in which it operates on a default, right? It's like, mm-hmm. oh, this is just the accepted way of being is that I should shrink myself, that I should not take up too much space, or that I should you know, have some sense of contrition when my body doesn't do that. Mm. And I think there's an invitation to say, is that appropriate? Should I actually do that? Like, and who is telling me to, right? Like, and, and why would they be telling me to? And what do they stand to gain or lose depending on how I show up to that conversation? It's an invitation to an inquiry mm. about the way in which we move and exist in our bodies. And I think if we start it from there, if we don't start from, okay, I heard, the body is not an apology. Now I have to stop apologizing for my body, which feels like yeah. a, a massive leap, right? Like that's yep. a huge leap. How do you get to that place though? To the big leap? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think you start there. Okay. Mm-hmm. You start with, what if I got curious about the places where I'm told to apologize? Mm-hmm. Okay. What if I just get curious about it? Oh, where did this message come from? You know, I, I was with a young lady in Brazil years ago and she was tiny, itty bitty, Mm -hmm. uh, beautiful, little, just tiny child. And she was just like, oh, I need to figure out how to get my stomach flat. And I was like, the one that's already flat. Mm -hmm. But the first thing I said to her was like, who told you you had to have a flat stomach? Mm -hmm. And she was like, huh? Mm -hmm. And I was like, who told you you had to have a flat stomach? And she'd never considered it, right? It, Mm -hmm. It was just this external, you know, admonishment about her body mm-hmm. that she'd never considered why she believed it, why it was a thing she was striving for. And that mm-hmm. is the, the, I believe that's the place that we start that gets us ultimately to not apologizing. Okay. Is once I realize that all of the places that are asking me for apologies are rooted in systems of my domination and degradation, I feel a lot less invested in giving them what it is they want. And yeah. that begins for me to be the mm-hmm. the, the trick. Can I tell you what that reminds me of? I dated a guy for about 
three days. I mean, dating. I mean, I'm going to use this very <laughs> got loosely. It. I, I got and this it. was the before life. So like, I was just, a, I was a hot mess. There's like a whole decade. It's just a, it's a hot mess. <laughs> and I don't even know where this man came from. Like, I couldn't even tell you his origin story. What I do remember is that he was very broke. He was mm. a very broke girl. He was he was so broke. broke. And I remember, yes, I remember him telling me he was like renting a room from somebody. I mean, he was broke, grown man, broke. And mm. I stood up, we were at a bar and I stood up to like go to the bathroom or something. When I came here, he was like, yeah, see, I like you. If you just got rid of a little bit of your stomach, you would be perfect. And I remember looking at him. He was so broke. <laughs> <laughs> But he felt so empowered to tell me that, you know, if I just got a little little bit of that stomach, I was perfect. Uh -uh. Exactly. Yes, But that's it, right? Like, that's the investment. Right. Ashy ass man. (laughs) But here's the thing that's the whole, that's the T, right? It's like the work of the body is not an apology at its core for me. It is political work. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's really important to say because what I see moving in that scenario you just named is yeah. patriarchy mm-hmm. depends on power mm-hmm. with somebody who ain't got no power because he ain't got two nickels to rub together. Thank the way you. in which he can check his power is by correcting you and making you deficient. Uh-huh. Something's wrong with you. And then I don't actually uh-huh. have to be with how I'm over here. I don't materialize like a, like a you know, cup of Earl Grey with nothing. Yeah. Right? I don't <laughs> yes. come out of the I don't come out of the Earl Grey materialization thing with zero to offer. I can mm. leverage power by telling you you're not enough. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, Happens every day. And and so in that moment, what you're saying is ask myself, this is the taking up of the invitation. Mm-hmm. To ask myself in that moment what I was being invited to. What, what what am I being invited to apologize for, yeah. and and why? Yeah, and why? Okay. Why would I be? In, oh, because Ashy McBrokerson doesn't have anything mm-hmm. else to offer in terms of his own power except to try to diminish mine. Girl, so broke. That's I think why. I so think broke. I had to give him a ride. Here's the thing. I think I had to give him a ride to the train. If I remember correctly, I gave him a ride <laughs> in my car, my automobile. Mm-mm. No, ma'am. You were no. the train. Yes. And so here's the thing, right? Because no, no. I don't want to. I don't want to shame broke. I don't broke either, it, right? Because like, the struggle is real for all of no, us. No, I mean we are all where we are. Don't be trying to diminish me because yes. you feel deficient. Yeah, that's, that's it. what I'm like. Correct. Because that's, that's right. what Correct. that is. It's like I don't feel good, so let me check mm-hmm. you so that you can feel under. Right, me. because it sounds like he needs to also like recognize your pocketbook is not an apology. Oh well, th- how and about it's not an apology, Roxanne Gay? Mm-hmm. Your pocketbook so like, you is know, not an apology. Just live your life. Live your truth. Yeah. Exactly. Because if he recognized mm-hmm. his pocketbook wasn't an apology, mm-hmm. then he wouldn't need to diminish you. Yeah. Yeah. That's the whole thing. So you have really created a movement and it has been really interesting. I remember first hearing you say the body is not an apology when we were appearing together at the Bay Area Book Festival. Yes. And I went back to my hotel room and I just sat there and I really was like, <laughs> huh. She really has some nerve. (laughs) Wow, where does she get that confidence from? And I just had to really mull it over. And then I started to do some reading. And I just think it's so freeing. And I wish I could, like, every single day carry that attitude, that, that belief with me. But, you know, where does this movement go for you now that people are getting on board and, and trying to learn this new way of having a relationship to our bodies and to reorient the relationship our bodies have in, in a world that it tends to say apologize? fix. Yeah. And 
One other thing I want to mention that I want our audience to know is I love what you say about we don't owe health to anyone. Like, Mm -hmm. so what if you're unhealthy? That really opened up a lot of thinking for me. Like, you know what? You're you're right. Like, there's nothing in the social contract that says that's right. I have to be able bodied or Mm -hmm. healthy. And those two things are not so you can be able bodied or disabled and healthy. Um, But Mm -hmm. I just thought that was really again, something that seems simple, but is not. And so I would just love to know, like, where we go from here with these really amazing ideas. Mm. For me, the first thing that I want is I want people to actually, again, start questioning the systems that we've been indoctrinated into and the beliefs that they just live in us, Mm -hmm. like they're ours, but actually they're functions of systems of oppression, right? And so this is all about oh, where have I internalized oppression and how can I give it back to its rightful source because I don't want it anymore? Where's my power inside of these systems of oppression? And my power is actually in how I relate to my being and my body by starting to question all the messages that I've been given about my being and my body. The ultimate point, and I tell people all the time, this is not a work of altruism for me. I'm not like, I just really want people to feel good mm-hmm. about themselves. It's not why I do any of this. Mm-hmm. I, do, I do this work because... The way in which people live in their bodies has a direct impact on my ability to live in my body. Because as long as we decide that white bodies are better than black bodies, my black body is at risk. Right. Yeah, Yeah. As long as we decide that thin bodies are better than fat bodies, my fat body is at risk. As long as we decide that able bodies are better than disabled bodies, my neurodivergence is at risk. My mental health is at risk. So I want a world where we can get out of that story so that I can actually live in my fullness. Mm -hmm. We can all live in Mm -hmm. our fullness. And so what I am hoping to see and what I'm beginning to see is people make the connection. Oh, the relationship with my body lives inside of a system, a system of dominance and power and control. Mm -hmm. And that I am both a victim in that system and I'm also a perpetrator in that system. Mm -hmm. The places where my body lines up with what the world likes is the place where I had a religion power and that I am often trying to mm-hmm. raise my position on that ladder of bodily hierarchy is the way we talk about it. So I get to be up a little bit higher mm-hmm. and my validation exists inside of me comparing myself to the people that are a little bit lower. Hence your guy at the, the right, gym, right. Your yep. the devil's in the comparison. Right? Yep. Mm-hmm. It's the devil's in the comparison. So if I divest from that system of comparison, then that system Mm. doesn't need to exist anymore. Mm -hmm. I've I've been calling it lately the VCR theory. I'm like, we have VCRs. Everybody had these big clunky tapes, and that's how you watch Raiders of the Lost Ark and whatever else it was you was watching on VCRs. And then we went to, you know, DVDs. Mm -hmm. We don't even have those anymore. Why? Because you watch your movie on a phone. Mm -hmm. And all that has happened is the evolution of technology has made an old thing obsolete. Yeah. That so you're saying, theory is yeah. true for everything, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So you're talking about the obsolescence. Of bodily comparison. Mm-hmm. If we don't need to be mm-hmm. in comparison with one another to derive our value and sense of worth, then the systems that rely on that comparison to profit mm-hmm. and to control and to power become obsolete. They become yeah. obsolete. So to me, this is one strategic way to dismantle systems of oppression. I mean, you're obviously speaking my language. Okay. I'm thinking about it like written on my own body. And Mm -hmm. I'm with you. I agree on all of it. I'm straight F you all day long about I'm going to take up space. 
I actually like to spread out. I like to uh-huh. make men especially uncomfortable when I take up a lot of space on uh, public mm-hmm. seats. Uh, I like to challenge their man spread. I'm very good at it. I'm a short person. I like to make tall people you know, come down to my size. I'm with you. And, but guess what? I still won't wear a tank top in public. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Never seen it, and you're probably yeah. never gonna see it. There's not a single instance of me ever wearing one. And why? Exactly. I don't know. I was gonna ask you. <laughs> I because <laughs> <laughs> I do not wear my arms out in public. The invitation is to get curious as why. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. that's your question mm-hmm. and the answer, because at the bottom of that is what you are still apologizing. Yeah. Yeah. Some of that answer is. Here's the place where I still believe what they told me. Mm-hmm. Sonia, how do you get to this place though? Like, how did I, I mean, how did you get to this place where you understood the control of bodies as a form of oppression and understood that mm-hmm. you can interrogate these kinds of things? I'll be honest and I'll say some of it I think is just my wiring. I'm mm-hmm. a, a nosy, a nosy in business, want to know why it works, how it works. So that was always part of me. And I think the other piece is that I have always lived in a family that lived at the intersection of a multitude of identities. Mm -hmm. I have two disabled siblings. You know, I'm a child of the crack 80s, Mm -hmm. of of addiction. And, um, but also my father was in the military. So there was the structure and resource that, Hmm. so there was always me being like, there are these binary worlds and there's got to be something in the middle. That was like, so that's always been my orientation to the world. And be clear, this is not like I just woke up one day and I was like, I asked all the questions and I was never inside the system. Mm -hmm. I, I probably did buy shares in all of the Weight Watchers, Jenny Craig, Mm -hmm. Nutrisys. I've been on all of them. Yeah. yeah. I counted all the points. Yeah. All the points. All the points, girl. I I counted all the points. I counted them all. (laughs) I count, you know, I hated being dark skinned. I had hair shame. Like, So I was deeply immersed in these things, but I think what happened for me was I got tired. I just got tired. I got tired of hating myself and I could see that I wasn't the only person hating myself, Mm -hmm. but there were other people Mm -hmm. who weren't. I just was like, who told me? Yeah, do you remember who you saw who sparked it for you? I mean, because you're that person for other people. Like, I even just read, like, the introduction to your to your book, and other people talk about seeing you stride into a room and that sparking a sort of, and like Roxanne telling the story of going back to a hotel room, and you're like, what the hell was that? What did I just see? You're that person mm-hmm. for others. Was there a person for you? So there was in this moment, and I talk about it in the book a little bit, where... I had said these words, the body's not an apology to a friend who had a disability. Yeah. That's how that's how the words came out of my face. Mm. And and again, I wasn't actually at a place where I could see it fully for myself, but I, I'm better okay. able to see things for other people than I am always. Like we all myself. are. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So I saw this for her and I was like, wait a minute, your body's not an apology. And then I went back to my hotel room and had to sit with it as well. <laughs> I was like, oh, I just I just said a thing. Yeah. Now, where in my life is that not aligned, right? And mm-hmm. so I had a selfie in my phone mm-hmm. where I felt fly. I felt real sexy in the selfie. Mm-hmm. And I also felt like I'm going to be judged and shamed. Don't show this to anybody. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't. And I just kept the picture hidden. Five months later, somebody posted a photo of a plus-sized model named Tara Lynn. She was naked on a wicker chair. And they posted it to my Facebook wall. And I was like, 
somebody paying her a lot of money to put her juicy thighs on the internet. Mm-hmm. Why am I tripping? Why, why am I tripping? And mm-hmm. that was the moment where I decided I'm going to share the picture. And when I shared the picture, that same experience of, oh, I saw a thing that somebody did, was, so maybe I can do it too, had that rolling effect. And because mm-hmm. it's contagious. At the end of the day, we are always spreading something. And we just have a history of spreading shame in comparison. That's mm. what we spread all the time. Mm. But we have the choice. We yeah. actually all have the choice to spread a different energy, yeah. to spread an energy of, of what if I'm cool? What if this is just fine? What if this fat black body, dark skinned mm. body is just fine? What if my arms in this tank top are just fine? <laughs> and that invitation, that invitation is contagious. Mm. This, it's, the, it's the reason other people go back and then start saying, oh, how did they do that? What if I did that? And mm. then the wheels start to turn. And I think that that is a moment that is sometimes gradual for people. Sometimes it is like, a, like an epiphany, right? But mm. either way it goes, we all eventually can get there. And we get there faster the more each of us awaken. And that's mm. what's been beautiful about this movement is I'm watching. I did a workshop years ago with a friend whose mother was a fire survivor. She was a burn survivor. Uh And she had never worn anything beyond uh, pants or a long skirt to her ankles for years. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the retreat, she put on her first pair of shorts in Mm -hmm. 25 years and was like, I'm ready to stop apologizing. That Mm -hmm. power, it can, if, if we want to invite ourselves to it. But it's scary. It's terrifying. I um. I started wearing shorts about two months into quarantine. I was like, why am I getting dressed up every day in hard pants? <laughs> yeah. This don't make no kind of sense. <laughs> right. And I thought, huh, I wonder if I could fit into a pair of shorts now. And so I bought a pair of shorts on the evil uh-huh. <laughs> and just because it was, I needed to spend ten dollars before I went to a, a real store and spent forty. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you needed yeah. it to actually show up in a couple. Correct. Of days. Yeah. And so <laughs> I got this pair of shorts. I tried them on. They fit. They were super mm-hmm. comfortable. And I have not looked back. And it was the first time <laughs> in thirty years. It was the yeah. thirty years. And I have even worn shorts in public. And I'm super hyper self conscious about it mm. and uncomfortable. At the, but at the same time, it's like you know what? I'm not wearing jeans, which are more uncomfortable. And I love mm-hmm. jeans, mm-hmm. but like this shorts revolution has been this so sh- outstanding. Oh. I am and I cargo shorts. I have little pockets for all my stuff. It's just nice. You can put your little tiny pan in one of the cargo pockets. Yes, you oh got my it. God, you got I love it. taking tiny pan with me. That's exactly right. <laughs> oh, girl, you pay attention. Otherwise. So you do. You do. You got it. I do. I do. Her little do. tiny pans that you like to stick in her little pants. Mm-hmm. And so it is. Yes. A, it is an evolution. It is. Okay, it so is. let me. Th- this is the like the sticky wicky part for me. I never know the difference between when I have internalized shame mm-hmm. and when I've made a decision like, oh, I just look better if I wear this style. I think I'm at the point where I where like you attuned to listen. There's got to be another better way to live, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm hot. Mm-hmm. I'm tired. Mm-hmm. Like it would be the middle of the damn summer. I'm in here hot. Mm-hmm. I'm about to <laughs> sweat and about to pass out and you won't take yeah. off a long sleep, right? It's insane. But then I'm like, well, maybe it's just I think I look better. But you would say to me, even that is a point yeah. for a question. 
Exactly, because it doesn't go together, right? And so okay. that's one of the things that we can start noticing. It's like, where is this not aligning? Mm-hmm. I'm hot. I'm in here dizzy, about to pass out. Yes, but maybe all the time, I just girl. Like sweaters, not yes. true, right? Like those don't actually go together. Yeah. That's when you can be like, oh, this is a place where I'm actually engaged in a little bit of self-deception because okay. I don't want to let in the fact that actually there is shame, mm-hmm. right? Uh-huh. And uh-huh. it's like, what if I just start with letting in? Yes, there is shame. Like okay. start there because part of what happens where we get stuck is this thing we call meta shame. It's okay. now I got shame for having shame. Right. Yeah. So then I can't look at my shame because I got shame for having shame. So yeah. I can't look at my shame. <laughs> right? yes. It's a horrible hamster wheel. Uh-huh. So instead, it's like, let, of course, I have shame. I live in a world that is from the time I got spat out of a womb, I have been told that I should be ashamed. Of course, I have shame. Where does that shame live? Okay. That shame lives in these arms. That shame lives in my head, wherever it lives. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's where it lives. Now, is this shame serving me? Mm-hmm. Or is it making me hot and dizzy and about to pass out and constricting my life? Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, no, it's not. And who wants me to shame? Oh, white men want me to keep this shame. All yeah. of that, by the time I get to the end of that, I'm like, fuck this sweater. <laughs> <laughs> you actually, by the time I walk through all of that, I'm done. You touch on something important, though. Uh, you know, like, who who does benefit from our shame? Yeah, yeah. And I, I think, yes. as with most things involving evil, white men can generally be found at the end of the journey. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but who well, else like, benefits? Why fix that? Fix yourself. I mean, honestly, there is not a true. day that goes by where I'm I don't like, think... Y'all not tired of living like that? Go talk to Jesus. Because <laughs> they just mm-hmm. need to do so much work. They're in such crisis. And they make the rest of us pay for it. And I would offer that that is a radical self-love issue. Mm -hmm. That what we are looking at at the highest level are people who have externalized their sense of value and worth in the world through domination and control because they don't have any connection to their inherent Uh sense of enoughness. Uh uh And that is what radical self-love is about. Yeah, now I'm with you on that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So every day when I find myself ashamed, I'm like, I don't want to be like a white man. I see where this road goes. Now that I I get, (laughs) I don't want to be like a white man. Well, well, we should have started it there. Now that resonates. <laughs> I don't want to be like a there white you man. Go. Yes. I don't want to be like a white yeah. man. Yeah, because I do live. I don't want to be like that. I live in such fear of, and by fear I just mean like I have so many mental checks on myself to make sure I don't fall into the trap of thinking that I deserve more than others. Everything I associate with whiteness and maleness. Mm-hmm. I don't deserve, even if I've earned something, it doesn't mean you deserve it, that those two are different things. Mm-hmm. Everybody deserves human mm-hmm. dignity and da 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 right? I have all these checks because I'm so afraid of becoming a narcissistic <laughs> asshole, basically. Right, and I'm like, yeah, right. don't be a white man. That's fascinating. Don't be a white yeah. man. And, and, and that would mean also all the ways in which I say that I am not enough is absolutely from the construction of white supremacist patriarchy capitalism. Mm-hmm. Everything. Me me thinking my arms ain't good is definitely from white men. Okay. Let me not buy that. Okay. Let me not buy that. No, actually, I'm not, you know what? I, I must say of all of this, I'm 100% on board with that. Yeah. I mm-hmm. think when you really like follow the bouncing ball backwards, you do end mm-hmm. up at mm-hmm. the white patriarchy. You end up a rich white man. <laughs> Every, so this is what I meant. This is what I meant when I said 
if I can start to get curious about where these messages come from, the problem is that we we make it individual. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, it came from my mom. Right. It came right, from right. the kids who teased me at school. And it's like, no, can we get curious at the systems level? Mm-hmm. Can we get curious at the level of colonization and imperialism? Because if I can see how colonization and imperialism is impacting my dis- my clothing decisions, mm-hmm. then I'm less invested in those clothing decisions. If I can get curious, like, oh, maybe I don't want to be into this weave no more. And I, that's uh-huh. no shame on weave. I'm here for weave. Right, mm-hmm. right. But again, it is not about what we do. It's about why we do it. And if we can track the why we do it mm-hmm. to at its systems level, oh, I'm not into being manipulated. Mm-hmm. I'm too brilliant for that, right? Yeah. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, let me challenge some of these things inside myself because I recognize they're not of me. Okay, so one last thing that I wanted to think about. You make a distinction that I think is really important, especially for this moment, I think, when everything is, oh, you know, you're isolated, you are, you know, we're dealing with crisis after crisis, self-care, self-care, self-care. I feel like you make a difference between self-care and radical self-love that's really important. Yeah. What's the difference? We have shrink Mm -hmm. self-care into, again, this very commercialized, capitalistic perspective about like, if I take enough bubble baths and light enough candles, I'm going to feel great, right? Mm -hmm. And again, bubble baths are not going to take down the patriarchy. (laughs) And so... (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Not going to happen. Just not going to happen, right? But radical self-love will. That's my point. But radical self-love will because, again, radical self-love is... I am willing to look at the places where I have told myself I am not enough and where the world has told me that I am not enough. And I am willing to begin the process of taking opposite action Mm -hmm. of that belief. And sometimes that opposite action is uncomfortable. Yeah. Painful sometimes. Yeah. Because it means that I have Mm -hmm. to challenge everything I've ever been told about how and who I'm supposed to be in the world. And that excavation can be brutal. Mm -hmm. But on the other side of it is a different level of liberation, a different level of personal freedom that I can move through. And so, you know, sometimes it is radical self-love is, yes, I called the therapist that I've been avoiding calling for five years. Mm -hmm. Sometimes radical self-love is I severed a relationship Mm -hmm. that I knew Mm -hmm. I really wanted to be in, but there was codependent and shrinking me in every single way. Mm -hmm. And I walked away and I cried for three months. Yeah. And it was an act of radical self-love. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is very different than this is toxic, but I'm going to take a bubble bath. Yes, it is. It is. Especially with the commercialization of self-care, it has become this thing where it's all peaceful and love and joy and perhaps, you know, um, expensive. (laughs) Yeah. Uh (laughs) Or indulgent. And it can be, but I I, Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to to point out that sometimes self-love is painful. Like I recently, (laughs) with some urging, um, started going to therapy twice a week. Mm. And I didn't, I was very resistant for a lot of reasons. First of all, that should be expensive. But (laughs) I just thought... I don't really. I, I'm tired of myself. I don't. I don't want to work on myself mm-hmm. this much. Yeah. And it, it. It's. It. You know. Getting to that place where I agreed to do it was not great. And I can tell already that it's the right thing to do. Like it's working. But I mean, it's challenging. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I wish we would stop glamorizing self love as mm-hmm. effortless because yes. it's not. I, it's, no. I yes. love that you say that. It's not at all. Not at all. My friend Malkia Surreal Devich says, I, "I can't promise." 
that you'll be happy at the end, but I can't promise you will be free. Uh, and I'll take freedom over, I'll take freedom oh, over happiness. That's it. And that is such a theme for us, for Roxanne and I in this show, choosing freedom, honey. Mm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Over it all, over money, over power. Over it all, over all of it. Freedom. Over all of it. I love that. I love it. All over it. Sonia, we have a question yeah. that we love to ask everyone that comes on our show, but especially the black women. Yes. And that question is, how can we, meaning Tressie and I, our listeners, the show, how can we help you do you? Mm, thank you for that question. Um, so you can help me by telling everybody to buy the second edition of The Body is Not an Apology. Perfect. It's out on February 9th. Okay. Please go get that. Um, so I am doing things that I really believe are expressions of radical self-love for me. One of those projects is called Buy Back Black Debt. Um, oh, I'm on yeah. a visioning team with Kay Williams and Katerina Norton. Okay. And collectively, we're attempting to buy back $83 million worth of black the debt. The Jubilee model. Amazing. Yes. And so if you have white listeners with wealth, please message us at info at, the, at org because yeah. uh, we would love to have you as a part of it. Um, but mostly, again, this isn't altruism. Radical self-love and each individual's practice of it makes my life easier. So the first thing I want you to do is just figure out, I want you, Tracy, and you, Roxanne, I want y'all to just test out putting these arms out. <laughs> see what it feels like. <laughs> That's, that would help me. Listen, Roxanne's all on board, and I'm going, I'll think no, about no, it. No, 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 no. I'm not on board like, about yeah. my arms. You better simmer down. You better step back. <laughs> I just want y'all to play with it a little bit. Okay. Play with it a little bit. And let us know how the journey goes. Let us know what what are you discovering in it? Because that, again, when your arms get free, I get freer. Okay. (laughs) All right. Listen, for you, in exchange for being (laughs) such a wonderful, gracious, generous guest on the show today, I'm going to give it a shot. Thank you so Lord, much for being I on the show. It. And thank you for existing in the in the world uh, radically and Aww. loving yourself. Uh, it matters that thank we see you. that in each other. Obviously, it does. It matters. Mm-hmm. It does. Thank you. Thanks. This has been amazing. Yeah, thank you all for inviting me. You know, I, I love to spend my morning with black women. So thank you yeah. for letting me. Yeah, it does make life go better. Thank you. Love y'all. And that is our show for this week. We had two incredible women on, and we hope you enjoyed everything. Thank you to all of you guys who are reaching out to us, like Rachel, who let us know. And I loved seeing this email in the inbox. I saw it because I loved it. That after listening to our show, Rachel no longer does speaking engagements for free, and she is now getting paid for them. I don't know what we said, Rachel, but I know it was something along the lines of black people should get paid. Women should get paid. People should get paid for labor. And I'm glad we said it. So if you guys don't already follow us, please do. And let us know what you think of this show, how you're reacting, what's going on in your world. You can do so at Twitter and Instagram and at Gmail at H-E-A-R to slay. From Luminary, Here to Slay is executive produced by us, Roxanne Gay and Tressie McMillan-Cottom. Our senior producer is Curtis Fox, and our producer is Catherine Finaloza. Production support from Lauren Garcia and Caitlin Adams. Our intern is Allie McPherson, and we have another brand new brilliant intern who just started with us, Isoki Samuel. I make no promises about this hit tank top situation, though, Roxanne. Now, wait, but you just I'm going to do it. You know what? I am going to try recording. it. No. I'm going to try it. But I'm going to try it for like a little errand. I'm going to go on yeah. like a little errand and try it. I love it. Yeah.
Mm-hmm. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.